Welcome to the Seek Outside Podcast. Hey, you, should, you think that's bad? See Ryan on the phone in the office. <laughs> What is up, people? Welcome to the Seek Outside podcast. We're here with you another beautiful Wednesday here in September. And with me, as always, we got Owen Tim. How you doing, buddy? We're doing good. Yeah? Hydrating. Hydrating. Staying stay on, that, on that Michelob game. Yep. Well, we got another uh, fun podcast episode today with you. We're going to get to the interview with Doug Duran here later. We're going to talk about some uh, some summertime stuff, um, but also some land share. You know the you know the drill with uh, Doug Duran. If you've listened to the podcast before, always interesting. Um, that being said, again, just to recap. The Seek Outside happy hour is always going to be um, just the two of us throwing back a couple Michelobes or Coors Lights, some Buckskins, if you will, maybe some, uh, I don't know, we have some of those Cuban Jack or what is it? Uh, oh, uh, Cayman Jacks. Yeah. Those things are good. Um, but yeah, and then we're just going to talk. I basically, what I do is I just scour the internet for uh, a couple topic lines that i find interesting that are related to something outdoors Mm -hmm. and uh this first one that we're going to chat about today is uh so arby's just came out with uh the big game burger so you're telling me they have the meats they do arby's always stays stacked with the meats and this is actually pretty badass, you know, from uh from a hunter's perspective you know they're getting game meat into uh, the the public's hands and basically for anybody that doesn't know Arby's <clears throat> as of September 12th they are going to be serving a burger on their menu that is one-third elk one-third venison and one-third beef now, this thing is $8.99 that's the thing that blows my mind how much does it weigh <clears throat> I don't know I mean it's probably like you know a third pound burger or whatever the standard thing is, it actually looks pretty good. It's got like Swiss cheese. We see. It's got like a, a raspberry sauce on it. Yeah. Yeah. It's got uh, pickles. It's got, uh, let's see, a cherry steak sauce. <coughs> and the thing that blew my mind about this was, you know, you go to a, you go to a fancy restaurant. Yeah. They, they serve elk burgers. You're not paying less than uh, 15 bucks for that thing. But these guys... At Arby's, found some back channel, some way to serve a big game burger for eight ninety nine. That's just insane. So I don't really, I don't know. That's a, I don't know what to think of that. Because it's probably it's got to be <clears throat> just knowing that it's fast food. It's got to be somewhat insanely processed, right? Yeah, like yeah, the, I mean, like the venison and the elk and stuff. Like, where are they getting this? I don't know. I, How I, are they getting? This? I tried to do some digging on it, um, but they, the, you know, as as you would expect, they don't have a lot of information. I almost wonder <laughs> if they get it from like a, I don't know, they might get it from like another another country or something. I have no idea. I couldn't find anything on it. Yeah. 
Um, <clears throat> but, you know, I did see, so they're doing this weird thing where they're like taking some people for a hike in Colorado. I, I had, it, it was very weird. They're like doing this contest where people can enter and then they're going to take X amount of people on this hike on like some ranch in Colorado here as part of like the promotion for it. Uh, I think they're going to do like a video around it. It seems very strange. Um, <laughs> Arby's as a company, they have some very interesting marketing tactics, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, they got the meats. <clears throat> they do have the meats. They're meet. getting the meats from somewhere. Yeah. That's the thing. You just kind of want to know where. How, how's know. this going down? That's the only thing that kind of throws me for a loop. Right. I, I think it's cool that they're serving big game. Um, just in looking at uh, a couple articles from outside online and uh there's one called uh, the takeout yeah it's like a food foodie magazine um but like all these people that were writing about it hadn't really tried game meat before um which is surprising especially at outside magazine because you'd think that those people especially if they're writing on the subject of a big game burger they'd have somebody that might know something about big game but she was like oh yeah you know venison can taste kind of bad and you know so a lot of people don't like it which kind of blew my mind mm -hmm. but uh it, i think it's good because you know some people are gonna taste game meat and hopefully it'll it'll uh open up some people's minds to to hunting and stuff like that probably yeah. not but <laughs> It is it is very interesting uh, as to where they get it, and again, the price for me is just kind of the the Eight big uh, big thing. It's like you just getting scraps from some butcher house and and putting it in there. Or, I don't know. Yeah. It's also know. weird that like thirty three percent of venison, elk, and beef. Yeah, it's gonna be one of those <clears throat> things. You're gonna see a TikTok video. It's gonna be like, here's how to make the Arby's big game burger. At your own house. <laughs> that is true. That it's is one of those things you're totally 100% going to see. Yeah. Um, but I'm kind of curious why. Like, I don't know, probably cost. Because if you ate like an elk burger at a restaurant, right, it's just way more expensive. Yeah. It's like, I mean, is that 60? That, that's 60% of the price, essentially. It is. Right? It so is. It's like a $16 elk burger. Yeah. Down to a $9. Yeah, it's legitimately 60% of the price. Yeah. So. I, I almost wonder if they have like some deal with some some rich, you know, game farm owner right. guy. Um because they were taking these people for a hike on some random guy's ranch. private ranch um to promote it. I I don't know. Strange. But Well I did, like maybe <laughs> maybe it's the guy from the last episode who poached twenty eight goddamn animals in mm. Oregon. Maybe they partnered with him. Yeah, maybe. <clears throat> Well, actually, I wonder. Uh, I wonder if they are, if there is some sort of uh, donation thing. You know, there's also yeah. maybe, maybe they're stealing from food banks, stealing from the poor, corporate. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I'm sure it probably will never come out, um, or maybe I just didn't do good enough research on it. You know, has the F uh, FDA approved? <laughs> <laughs> they they had to. Have. Yeah, they had to. Have. But I, I, what's interesting is they've done this before. Have they? Yeah. They, yeah. they sold uh, back in 2016. They had a sandwich that was just a slab of venison. And then in 2018, they did a duck breast sandwich. Hmm. So 
Arby's is really they're kind of you know testing the that's kind of breaking the norm from uh, it is from and I had never heard that they had like sold big game. It's like they're bringing so. the McRib back. Yeah, I know the the McElk, the McElk, the Kelk. <laughs> but uh, anyway, yeah, interesting one there. So this time of year, if a, a, a person were to go. On social media or scroll, you know, through whatever their uh, news publication is, whether it's uh, Fox uh, online, you know, whether it's Fox, CNN, and MSNBC, Yahoo, Google, whatever, Bing. news outlet, Bing, um, you know, there's probably going to be uh, some article about leaf seeking. Yeah. And popular destinations. Yep. <clears throat> to go looking at leaves. Now, we've talked about this before, mm. many guests and just us. Um, it's kind of very spot outing. It, yeah. You know, you're you're essentially giving away spots. I mean, I've I've looked at some of them, and a lot of them are given away. Like, there's a spot here in Colorado, not too far from us, about an hour and a half away. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, it gets outed so much. Oh yeah, and it it's, it's insanity. It's amazing. It's an amazing spot yeah. to view leaves. Um, but it does get outed on like every single one of these articles about top ten spots to view leaves. And sure. you know, it's uh, it's interesting because. Um, you know, these articles, some of them are, are just giving away towns and stuff like that, but, um, it, it is very, I mean, it's spot burning, you know, yeah. it, it's spot burning and a lot of, especially for, uh, eco, you know, for landscapes that are already Fragile. under the gun. Yeah. Um, you know, these, uh, these articles are telling people to go to these dirt roads a lot of them uh already washboarded and destroyed out yep yep and i just wonder about it what are your thoughts on that you know it's a hard thing because even if a news network is pushing it some guy on tiktok or instagram is gonna make a video about it he's gonna do the exact same thing and honestly these days the platforms can reach even more people. Mm-hmm. So, I think it's unavoidable these days with the internet. <clears throat> it's more like, I think it would be frustrating to have lived in areas where there's very these things, and you just see more and more and more and more people all the time. But, <clears throat> happy hour. Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, I think you, I mean, it's just unavoidable. Mm. And, you know. I think educating people about how to be nice to the landscape more so than anything is probably the better option. Yeah. You get like, like all the, you get a lot of surface shitting. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? You just do it. Like, like you see it more, maybe because you pay more attention these days because there's just more people in the woods, but you see it more often than you see some toilet paper and some spots and you're like, man, just dig a hole, (laughs) you know? So, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not super pressed about it these days. So just kind of realize it's just unavoidable. It's just. I mean, some some person's gonna try and profit off of it. And I think a lot of people, especially if it's like an article, like if it's just like an article to read, people just like reading the article because they're like, oh, look at how pretty that is. Look at how cool this is. So 
don't know. What's yours? Yeah. What, what's your thought, bros? What's your take on the spot burning a little bit? Well, I think, it's not like they're going to like. Not all of them are super exact, but yeah. there are like I saw one today on Instagram. I was like, I was camped right there. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Well, I think um, there's two things. A, I think top ten lists have uh, people love top ten or, or top, top five, five lists. Threes, yeah, 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 and uh, I think uh, uh, top ten lists, which event uh, essentially come from Sports Center, the top ten mm-hmm. plays. Sports Sports Center is directly contributing to the the just mashing of our favorite spots, mm-hmm. the 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 overcrowding of our favorite spots. No, but for real, I think. Uh, the top five lists, you know, because there's something that everybody looks at. Mm. It's like something that grabs your attention. For sure. Um, I don't know. I mean, they're, it is what it is. It, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like but, something you can't be like. Especially like at first, like when I saw like all those things starting to happen, I was like, oh, grumpy about it. And then like spots and areas just getting blown out. But like the now it's just somewhat unavoidable because, you know, like if some news network or some article publishing thing isn't going to write about it. Some dude on social media is going to write about it. Yeah. It's going to no, get out for, to the same people, you know, for I mean? sure. And, you know, to be honest with you, this whole thing kind of relates to this concept that I've thought about mm-hmm. with, uh, overcrowding and, and just, uh, over saturation and wild spots. You look at a lot of these articles and they're all, like the same places, mm-hmm. you know. I think it's, you know, people are gonna look for that stuff, right? If they're if somebody's going onto the internet because they live in some place where the leaves aren't crazy, or maybe it's not, you know, maybe they're in Denver or something like that. They just moved to Denver. They want to see the top ten spots in mm-hmm. Colorado to go view leaves. They're gonna look that up anyway. Yeah. If there's like consensus places. And all these articles kind of lead you to the same spot. It's kind of like the sacrificial lamb. Right? Yeah, unfortunately. I mean, I mean, and there's so many places you can get more remote and away from exactly the people. But and you don't want to tell people about those. So if you no. tell, them, hey, yeah. this spot. Hey, look. Yeah. It's almost like everybody's I like, I like this. colluding. I would yeah. Go there. I mean, it's like uh, I always make it the joke about like, yeah, just send everybody to Montana. Sacrificial yep. lamb. Just, yep, exactly. Well, choose one state. Just yeah. one state out west. Just, I'm sorry. Go to Yellowstone. It's the greatest yeah, national Yellowstone. park ever, yeah, man. It's just yeah. Yellowstone. Yeah. It's already, it's already clapped out. You might as well get Yellowstone. Yeah. I mean, where's the prettiest place I've ever been? It's where I would go. Yeah, just forever. You know. Yeah. Nowhere yeah. else compares. Nowhere else compares. <laughs> Nowhere else compares. Meanwhile, a three-hour line to get into the park. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it's like it's the same thing as. Uh, they do like arches is totally in Moab is totally just like a sacrificial land. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, it can be the same thing. Three hours lines to get into the park. And you're just like, Oh, I mean, I guess I'm never going into arches yeah. unless it's the dead of winter. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's all, <clears throat> yeah, at a certain point, just got to sacrifice one spot, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> it's just funny that all these, you know, all these networks that traditionally don't give a shit about, natural landscapes or don't publish anything about the outdoors mm. now it's like you know oh go view leaves yeah. go hike yeah. this trail 
go do maroon maroon bells in colorado it's great mm-hmm. so like, all right some some dude just freaking googled this shit and wrote down what he found on some art, other article yeah, yeah it's like a echo chamber also what do you think i mean what honestly what do you think the percent of people that read it to the people the percent of people that do it i don't know you See, know because i feel like it's it's i feel like it's a lot of people want to go do these things and like aspire to do it mm-hmm. i don't think many like go and do it you know what i mean like yeah. you meet people in towns who've never you know like hour and a half drive away like from junction you know some of these spots and you're like you've never really left the town you know yeah. there's all these you know you've never ski like there's a, like there's so many things and you wonder like well maybe that mean, not that many people are actually like reading the, they're just reading it for the entertainment value yeah dude it's surprising how you go to like some of these what adventurous people would think of as like adventurous towns yeah and you see how many people like don't get out don't yeah. don't enjoy like i remember going up to a couple spots in montana and like talk going to the the fly shops and shit like that mm-hmm. and just talking to people and they're like mm, yeah i don't know you just go fish downtown and that's yeah, it yeah yeah it's weird man it it's is, weird yeah. that there's but that related to your point i think it's uh it's tough for me to judge because I'm a person. I'm the type of person that like. Oh yeah. If I see some shit like that yeah, on Instagram, yeah. I'm doing the opposite. I'm like not. Oh, you're doing the opposite. Yeah. No, yeah. I'm not. I'm not following. You know, it's kind of like uh, uh, going against the man. You going know, against these, it. Some of these influencers. Well, if I dude, if know? I see, if I see a cool spot and it's close to me, I'm I'm gonna go check it out. I mean, I've checked out so much yeah. of the area around me, but like, if there's a spot, you know that. I've heard about probably gonna go check it out eventually yeah, yeah. might as well yeah i, th- I think a lot of I, I think i don't know it's probably probably 50 50 just like in this room yeah you and me yeah you do i don't Boom. <laughs> i dude i bet you it's three percent i bet you it's three percent yeah i mean there's a lot of people that just look at that shit and yeah it's just, just a like good, it's saying. a good read yeah, yeah. i mean it's it's, it, it's aspirational at some point in my opinion and mm-hmm. i hell i like to read them it's not like i'm a big uh peeper you know i just end up in the woods you know and like being out there but i don't think uh i bet you it's a small amount comparatively what everybody would think and that's like the thing with the spot blowing up i guess like i just don't think that many people are that dead set on getting there you know what i mean yeah it's spot spot blowing is such a weird like you know a lot of people. It's like it, it's it's super gatekeepy, but like kind yeah. of some. It should be to an extent, but also not. You know, that's just mm-hmm. a hard thing. It's like if it were all just word of mouth, you know, like that just doesn't travel as far. You know, versus with the availability we have on the internet these yeah. days to really look up anything you'd ever want, you could go find an article from 2015 about where to leave you know what i yeah. mean so it's like all the information's already out there like if you really want it yeah that's that's like part of why i think it's like people are <clears throat> reading these articles more for the entertainment aspect and the aspirational aspect more than they are for the like i'm gonna go do this next yeah. weekend i'm gonna go out and drive this loop to see all the colors i think it's yeah. more of like people are like oh that's pretty badass love to do that one day and then close it and kind of forget about it you yeah. know what i mean well, it's like the people who are already going to do that are going to, yeah. 
they're they're you know no it's like what i said like yeah. you can go find that article from 2015 and be like oh hell yeah mm-hmm. i'm going to these four spots yeah so it's like yeah. you know i don't know it's hard it's hard my okay. my my problem is getting to the the smaller spots where you think you're like oh i, I love this spot nobody goes mm-hmm. here and you're like oh yeah how many people can yeah. be here this is insane you know that's, yeah that's my little it's, bit it's tough because you want to tell people yeah, I mean, uh, you want to you want to tell people where the cool spots are, right? Yeah. Well, you want but, everybody to be able to enjoy it, but you also want to be able to enjoy it to yourself. Yeah. You know, it's, like, it's such a hard, hard thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. yeah. All right. Well, the last, uh, last thing I wanted to talk about here in uh, the old Seek Outside happy hour. This one kind of... I, th- I think a lot of people get some value out of this. So let me ask you, let me start off with this question. Have you ever heard of, well, let me paint the picture first here, right? So, uh, and I'll give a little little plug God action <laughs> to ourselves. So anybody who's listening, we have a video out on YouTube called Ride and Seek, where? It's a cool video I hear. Myself, Owen, a bunch of other guys from Ruby Canyon Cycles here in Grand Junction, Trussell, um, the great company that does, um, you know, fly fishing accessories and bike packing accessories. Yeah. Um, we all linked up, did this video fishing competition. Anyways, <clears throat> we were up uh, on a spot here in Colorado where the bugs were the worst that I've ever seen in my entire life. It was, I mean, un- it was unbelievable. It was like clouds. And you can only, you, if you want an example of what I'm talking about, go check out the video. Go check it, out the video. Like it literally was, clouds. It was mosquitoes. literally unbelievable. Mm-hmm. It was, there was no amount of deet, no amount of things no. you could wear. No, like I wasn't exhausted from the trip. I was just exhausted from the bugs, dude. Yeah. Like it was insane. Well, I think that after this trip, we could have ex- experimented with this new device. Okay. So, bug bites suck, right? I'm the type of guy that I get super itchy, like, and you I can't so stop. Bad. I can't so stop bad. itching, dude. Like, I, I will, I feel like a meth addict, dude. I'm just like clawing at my shit, start bleeding, still itching. You know, it's yeah. savage. Yeah. So, I've tried a bunch of different. <laughs> options for kind of trying to quell mm-hmm. the itch right and i haven't found any you know there's stingies some of the ointments out there mm-hmm. that you can throw on there none of them really work and i don't i just to be clear i don't know if this works but in reading this article i was very intrigued by it and i think i'm gonna order one here so have you ever heard of a heating device to cure bug bites no all right so there's this company called heat it um i believe that it was founded in 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 europe uh but it's basically it's like this little device that you can plug into the charging port of your phone Mm -hmm. and you get an app and basically this little device has a little ceramic plate on the bottom of it and you turn it on and it can heat up up to 124 degrees fahrenheit um and from there, you put it on your bug bite, and apparently, it cures your bug bite. Now, I 
was very suspect of this whole situation, right? Yeah. Because it's like, you know, it could just be another gimmicky thing. Uh, this was a outside magazine article that I was reading. Um, now, but as I was reading, I was kind of looking into it and it's actually this, this concept of getting some heating device and putting it on a bug bite um, is super common over in Europe. Yeah. Like it's like uh, to the point where uh, this article said that 70% of the households in Germany own some sort of device that really? is heat, you know, heat based to kill, to, to quell bug bites. Really? I had never heard of that. What are your thoughts on that? I want to try it. I, you know, I don't get bug bites that bad. And I don't get super itchy. Yeah. Like where I was camped this weekend, mm-hmm. I was getting destroyed by mosquitoes. Hmm. Unbelievably. But, you know, like I, I think I had like three bumps. I think they got to stay on me for like a minute like yeah. to get a bump. Um, but that's interesting. I'm, I'm amazed that the 70% in Germany I own yeah. something for bug bite. Like, I don't know. Honestly, I could not name a single person I know who owns something to yeah. quell bug bites. Yeah, well, and I mean, I think a lot of people will have like the ointments and shit like that, but yeah. Problem with them is like if you're sweating, especially if you're out in the field, it, yeah, it sweats off. You know, it gets washed off, bumps up against your clothes. You wipe it off. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, apparently it's a, a super effective way of doing it. It, it, you know, I don't know how they measure this, but apparently it reduces itching by eighty percent. Um, which, according to the to the founder Lucas Latekey, um, it was. Uh, much more than a lot of the ointments out there. But yeah, I just didn't know that it was such common um, cure for it in other places. And in looking, it's very common in Europe. Like they have all really? sorts of battery options and stuff like that. <laughs> this one just happens to be like super small and that's what's different about it. But in the article, he was saying like the reason why he thinks it could really blow up in America is because he was saying that, like, in their research, less than 2% of people know about heating for bug bites. Yeah, so, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. <clears throat> makes that's, sense. that's an interesting product. I mean, I guess yeah. it's like, uh, even, like, out east, you would think that there's more bug bites and stuff than there'd be out in Europe. I mean, I've never been, but you would think, just because it's so wet and buggy out there. <clears throat> I wonder if it helps with, like... How's it do it? Just it's interesting. It's interesting. Yeah, I think it it heats it up and it probably kind of like decomposes the venom or whatever it is. Not venom, I don't, but I don't know. Uh, it it might have something to do with uh, like your nerves there, right? Because Maybe. basically, a bug bite, mosquitoes and other bugs that itch, they release like some chemical in your bloodstream in the surrounding area that essentially kills your well it doesn't kill them but like numbs you Mm -hmm. your nerves in that area so that you don't feel them so i would assume that it has something to do with with that chemical reaction and heat you know yeah maybe almost like essentially cauterizing it even though 124 degrees it's not cauterizing it but i I think it's has something to do with that so i wonder wonder does get it like taking a hot shower 
I don't know. Does taking a hot shower help? Or well, getting I've, in a hot tub? <clears throat> 106, like burning yourself alive? Maybe. Maybe. Does it would it? be interesting. Yeah. Maybe yeah. that's your solution. Maybe here in, in, in the States, you buy yourself a hot tub. Yeah. That's a cheap option. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 24, this thing is like 24 bucks at REI. Yeah, so. you could get yourself a hot tub for about that. Yeah. You just got to uh, probably steal it. You're yeah. just talking gas money, but. Yeah. And the janky ass trailer that you put the hot tub on. <laughs> Made of wood. Uh, it's yeah. got a wheel, but it's just a wheelbarrow hooked up to a hitch. Yeah. Yeah. I, hey. I think uh, you can get creative with hot tubs. Yeah. I saw on uh, there's. Uh, that show alone, I was watching an episode and this dude made a hot tub out of like a, I don't know what it was. It was like a galvanized, almost like, uh, like cattle trough, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. water, water tank. And, uh, he burned a fire under it for like four days to get it all to get it hot. Yeah. yeah. And then he, he jumped in and he, uh, subsequently like two days later, he got, booted because he got all sick and stuff but uh you know mm. he probably had a, a good day in the hot tub there dude that's all i would be doing <laughs> yeah like hot tub yeah. forever be amazing the uh i have a buddy who made one out of a horse trough yeah works strong yeah. yeah i mean shit you can get you can get creative with it you can you gotta clean it often <laughs> yeah <laughs> well those are some pretty good stories yeah honestly i felt like this was a this was a good one yeah it's good definitely. happy hour well, uh, anybody who has anything that they uh, they feel like we should uh, talk about or want to want to hear our opinions on, not that we have good ones, but you know, if for some reason you do <laughs> want to hear our opinion on something, hit us up at uh, podcast at seekoutside dot com, and uh, if not, enjoy the interview with Doug Durant. Now or what are we, I, yeah, I'm, I'm rolling. So yeah, feel free to, <laughs> you, I, you just hit the, you hit the record button. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. A lot of times the pre-talk is better than the actual talk. Exactly. Right? Yep. But re- just real, well, anyway, real quick, Ruby Valley is in, is that Nevada? That's not West, Western, Mon- no, okay. it's Western Montana. Okay. Um, so, um, and they, uh, have a i'm sorry this thing is they have a um situation a cwd situation over there in white-tailed deer and a high population of white-tailed deer mm. but they also have mule deer they also have elk and they also have moose right so if the um white-tailed deer which might be our only might be our only big game species in the midwest but out there it's sort of the uh, it's like in a category by itself, mm-hmm. right? It's not as, um, how shall we say, the white-tailed deer is not as popular in uh, Montana, western Montana, as maybe the other species of cervids. One, it, it probably gets a lot less uh, conservation dollars, and I, I would assume, I don't know that, but just because there's not nearly as many of them, not as popular, not as much of a revenue driver, uh, you know, people from out your way come out here to hunt elk they don't necessarily come out here to hunt hunt white tail deer yeah we have plenty of those here right yeah um yeah we got plenty of those here um 
So yeah, that's that's an interesting thing. But when there are when there's a uh, when there's a high prevalence of a highly communicable disease in that species, and maybe they are the least and they are the least favored species, you could understand how it would be easier to get behind an a uh, severe herd reduction. Um, program mm-hmm. because they are a threat to mule deer and elk and whatnot, or I shouldn't say that they are so much as that the disease that they're, that they're carrying in high prevalence. But the other thing that was amazing to me, Ryan, was that um, I was looking at a uh, an area where there are a hundred deer were not now, but were a hundred white tailed deer per square mile of habitat. That's a staggering number. Well, so I got I got a couple questions, and I would like to switch over to kind of more of the sharing the land um, here in a second. But um, I, I just wanted to rewind real quick and ask a couple questions about your trip out west there. Um, so, in in talking to this ranch manager there, manager there in the Ruby Valley, um, you know, the west this year had a ton of snow. Um, I know some spots. Um, like we're, we're lucky because there's a ton of space out here. Um, habitat is not as fragmented. Um, so these animals have a lot of room to roam and it has kind of, uh, you know, a lot of people say that that's kind of kept CWD at bay out here. Um, as opposed to out East where, you know, ha- habitat fragmentation is different and white tails are, are kind of different in how they act. But this year, um, in a lot of places, I think there might have been um, just because we had such a historic winter. I know here in Colorado, a lot of there's some units that um, saw like you know 50 to 60 percent of their deer die. Um, tags have been reduced like 90 percent. Um, but with that, uh, these winter ranges for some of these animals got a lot smaller. And I know it was basically across the whole West, this, you know, it was, it was a lot of snow and a long winter. And, and the difference was a lot of the wintering grounds had a lot of snow. You know, I'm sure people have seen, um, videos of, of people, you know, putting pellets down for deer and, and feeding them and stuff this winter. I know the mule deer, mule deer foundation did a lot of that, but my question is, did the, did the ranch manager up there in the Ruby Valley, did he say anything about that? Did he have any, any feelings about how that was going to affect populations CW, CWD-wise? Is it, is it good because it actually did thin some of these herds out? Or uh, did they have any opinion on that? <sighs> well, what... Um you know, again, it's so, what's so interesting, or I guess what I started to say is that it's almost like you have these areas where there's more white-tailed deer than anything else, mm-hmm. right? Um, then you have the, 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 the areas where there's more, the mule deer are more apt to be and where the elk are more apt to be. And mule deer and elk seem to, mule deer have in some areas, not in that area, but in some areas have been um, highly susceptible and have high, been highly impacted by CWD, but not in that area. This is pretty much a whitetail thing where, where I was. They have taken this step of, I'm going to go back for a second. The It was clear to me 
that there was a hell of a lot of snow out there last winter because the rivers and the creeks were just roaring. Oh, man, I mean, yeah. a lot of it still looked still looked like chocolate milk. I didn't I didn't I wasn't going to have time to trout fish and I just figured that I'd borrow a rod or whatever if I I know people who went out and they did okay, but I just didn't um have the time. I was a little more focused on um I was looking more focused on what I was doing there. This was a now, business is the right way of putting it, but it was more of a more business and conservation trip than it was a funsies trip. You know, yep. um, it would be it, I should be good better at like being able to mix those two things, and sometimes I can. But um, I didn't even think about taking stuff along. I just had a, I was gone for ten days, and I um, and I worked pretty much every one of those days. Yeah, you know, on what I was out there for. Um, some of it. You know, my definition of work is a little bit different than some people's, I suppose. But I didn't do any fishing as my, and I and I didn't regret not having my my fly rod along. Oh. Um, so there was a lot of water, and man, when I was over in Bozeman, uh, every I mean, I stayed in Bozeman every night the, from Monday night through um, Monday through Friday, and then I left Saturday afternoon, and it rained pretty much every day. Wow. Um, so there was, I mean, it was beautiful. I mean, holy moly, the Bozeman area was just gorgeous, you know. And I went out to Billings with Ranella on Friday night for a, a book signing thing that he was doing with he and his wife. And just driving through the Yellowstone Valley over to Billings was just, oh man, you know, it was just gorgeous, yeah. you know, and nice and green and holy moly. Um, so definitely an impact there. During the discussions that I was a part of when I was out there, there was some discussion about how um uh the snow and the and the harder winter um um was affecting the herds but then also well are we going to put or when they put alfalfa pellets out or hay or whatever and you got all these animals sticking their head in the same haystack you know is the is the the question becomes is the cure worse is what you're doing there worse than um by feeding them, are you making it worse? But if you're not feeding them, you're losing them. And boy, I mean, you you know, we can have a back and forth about that yeah. all afternoon. And smarter people than me are working on that. Um, intuitively, I I'm like, I can't imagine dumping pellets. I mean, it's a it's a bait pile, right? Yeah. Um, it's a feeding pile, and these guys, you know, one, and and there was discussions about how that's done, and is that a good idea? And I think. Um, they're you know they're looking at it. These folks that I was visiting out out west out there um, in the Ruby Valley, they you know that's not they weren't particularly concerned about that. They were more concerned about their um, uh, about their uh, the, the the numbers that they had, but also the impact on the on the ecosystem. This is what was really interesting yeah. to me about it, right? So some of that river bottom. I saw big, tall, uh, what do they call that? Buffalo berry and um, willow and cottonwood and stuff that was above browse line. And then there's just this whole area where there didn't seem to be anything. And then there was one and two-year-old sprouts of cottonwood and, and willow and, and buffalo berry and, and, you know, just, and forbs and other stuff that's in the food plot. I, I'm looking at exclosures out there where they've got, eight foot fences around areas where they planted, um, 
you know, various native species, again, you know, the same ones I've already listed, and then had these big fences and kept the deer out so they weren't completely losing them. But what we were seeing as we were driving around based on their man on the management that they were doing, and I guess because also the amount of CWD that they had and the number of deer that were dying, was in the last two years, all of a sudden you're seeing regeneration mm. of those native species because they're not getting overbrowsed. Yeah. And you could tell that four years ago, five years ago, they were getting overbrowsed. Mm -hmm. And so there wasn't any, so there's nothing in that age class, you know, that in-between age class. It was just really interesting when you looked at it like that. I mean, these guys are telling me, and other people had told me too about driving around over there, talking with Cal about it, or Ryan Callahan about, you know, driving around over there, and, you know, and it was nothing to see two or 300 deer as you're going by some of these fields with the, you know, the center pivots. Wow. Um, and, you know, there's, it, it, and, and, you know, it's a sort of a recipe for, um, for spreading a highly communicable disease. And then, well, how long does it take for it to really hit? And there's just a lot of pieces of the puzzle out there that, um, I, I, you know, I can only say so much about. But I found, I was intrigued by the idea that they were both concerned about, they were as concerned about disease as they were about habitat. So they were, they've been doing a lot of, of hunting, um, uh, and, and extended seasons and that sort of stuff. And, and hunters have been able to get to do the work. That's been what's been pretty cool about it, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> Imagine. So I was just thinking about this in terms of the juxtaposition of the two things. Um, you know, ranch out there, one ranch that I visited is with like 12, 15,000 acres, you know? And um, I'm like, holy crap, that's a lot of land. And it's like one landowner, two land landowners you're dealing with, right? And so 15,000 acres, if it was 15,000 acres in Southwest Wisconsin, we average about 75 acres per landowner. You're talking about 200 landowners to try to get 200 landowners in Wisconsin to agree on what should be happening is, you know, is, is impossible. So what a, they've got such a great opportunity yeah. and they were taking it very seriously to, we've got a big enough area that we can really have an impact. And, and they learned what was happening when they discovered it. Just not that many years ago, it was like, oh my God, it's a lot worse than what we thought. And well, I use this analogy all the time. It's just like a dumb farm kid, so I'm always coming up with analogies. And we used to say, if you see one rat, you got a hundred of them, <laughs> right? And on the farm, if you saw one rat, you had a hundred of them. You see one sick deer sick with CWD, you got a lot more than a hundred of them, yeah. you know, depending. Because by the time you're seeing deer that are in that that clinical stage at the end, Probably established in your area. Yeah. We've ha I have seen them on my farm, but I have seen a lot more that have been um, just have tested positive. And then there's sort of this how things go through. But I will go back to one of the things that I think is really cool about this. Um, like I said, so trying to see the silver lining in it is when you start worrying about something other than this damn disease, right? If we can start thinking about how can we really do the things that are best for the for the deer herd and what are best for the ecosystem, if we start doing that, we're going to control disease. Yeah. That's going to that's going to happen, right? These guys, so with one landowner and one effort and working with the state and getting in a bunch of hunters. They got a bunch of hunters in there over a long period of a long period of time. Um, success, very successful program, how they put it together. And I've been keeping in touch with them and, and you know, I don't want to say too much about it cause it's a whole private thing and it's their, their privacy and all that. But, 
Um, they've been reaching out. And the cool thing is they've been doing it with local hunters too. You know, it's not like they're bringing in some big fat guy from Wisconsin to come out there and shoot deer or anything like that. They're, they're doing it with local hunters and welcoming, you know, so it's, I just really like what they've been doing. But again, if you've got one person, one landowner, it's got 15,000 acres and you got this, you know, this, this effort that you want to make, it's a lot easier to make decisions with one person and with then and, and one ranch manager and, and the state than it is if you've got 200 landowners, which is in some of them are going around here and some of them are going, ah, I don't know what the big deal is, and, yeah. you know, until, until it's a big deal. And then they're like, well, why didn't we do something about this? And it becomes that whole thing, right? Yeah. Nobody, nobody gets real concerned about it until it affects them, affects them directly. And when these cats in Montana that I was talking with, when that happened to them, they got, they, you know, they, they really got after it. And it's, it's cool to see the, the, it was sad to see what was happening, but at the same time, cool to see the success. Yeah. And I got to talk to some people who had hunted it, and they're like, wow, it was great, you know? Yeah. Every deer got tested. Um, 80% of their bucks were, t were positive. 80% of the antlered wow. whitetails were positive. 50% of the does. Um, I mean, 15% of fawns. Well, holy crap, you know? you got That's high, high prevalence based on what I know about it. But they, they're doing the best they can. Now the question becomes, and uh, I, some of the other folks that I spoke with later in the week as part of these other meetings that I was involved with, there were some scientists there, and, and they were talking to me about, well, if you've been killing so many deer in your place, we should really be keeping track. I was like, I got 400 acres. Yeah. Um, maybe I ought to put you in touch with these folks out here with 15,000 and study that. Yeah. What happens now? Okay, you go back, you go, now that they've done it, right? They've gone out there and they've knocked that population back along with the disease doing it. So now what happens, right? There, there's this, we need, now that we've got places where this has happened, let's make sure we're studying to see what happens in terms of prevalence over time is that you know is the, give us so we can have more evidence about intuitively this is the the right thing to do but does the evidence show that's the right thing to do too yeah right well so a lot there's a lot there i realize oh no for that's but it, it's it's good because um i mean i think that's a the overarching point there of managing the land and not not the animals i, I think that's kind of becoming the over you know you look at some of these newer blm management plans uh some of the national forest plans they're, they're becoming much more like conservation based right like they're, they're we're starting to talk about like forest fire management right and how like oh okay maybe maybe we should think about this more so than just putting out every fire that sparks up because it, it does have this big effect and you know that something as small as that has a, a big trickle down effect through all the animals and it yeah it's just like what you were saying like if you got if the uh if the field mice are happy then the the deer are probably happy as well and um but yeah i mean i, I think that's it, it's it's interesting because that seems like it would be a simple solution for conservation right just like oh you manage the whole land but it's funny. That yeah, I know, right? I mean, it's like, oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's not the case, right? We, 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 for, we forget at times, you know, it's called uh, the, this thing that we, all, that, that we all tout is called the North American Model of Wildlife Conservation. Wildlife Conservation. 
not game species conservation, mm-hmm. even though it was certainly initially uh, initially about game species, right? Because so many of the the the, the pillars of the North American model are about um, uh, the democracy of of hunting and how um, how uh, you know guarding against guarding against how you know if we start to commodify game. Um, again, the commercialization of game was what led to the loss of, um, you know, some species. I mean, I know about enough about the American buffalo um, to know that it was a hell of a lot more than them just being oversold and and, and then the, and commercial hunting. There was a, there was an intent there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the intention was to wipe them out. Yeah. Um, not just commercially, but we know that market hunting. Heck, I knew a guy whose family were market hunters. Um, on the Great Salt Lake, uh, you know, duck hunters. Well, <laughs> what those guys were doing. I mean, we we know that 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 has a severe impact because, well, how many is enough? Well, you know, I, I got to make my money next year. You mm-hmm. know, and it was really interesting. I was riding along with Ranella over to and uh, over to Billings and back, and you know, nothing like nothing like driving along the Yellowstone River with a guy who wrote a book about the American buffalo, right? Yeah. And talking about the American buffalo and going through that territory. And he was talking about how these guys, the the hide hunters, you know, that all happened in such a short period of time where they killed millions of buffalo, you know, over a three or four year period of time. And then how these guys just hang out, hung out like in Billings, waiting for the next herd to come down from Canada. And it never came. Yeah. Because there weren't any more, yeah. right? Um, because we didn't have that kind of, and so you can understand why a reaction to that would be, well, let's not do that again. So let's not over commodify an animal but like i said their buffalo were being wiped out i mean i think as the buffalo went so did the american indian i'm sure it all the, all those things intertwine but certainly we can agree that for the most part that commercial you know being able to sell deer meat for instance could lead to some real issues on the other hand we also know that regulating um, the taking of, of the public's game, I mean, fish are the public's game, right? I've been up to Alaska and watched purse sainers taking millions of pounds and tons of fish, and then we're out there with our rods. Yep. You know? yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and seeing those two things going on side by side, well, you, you can do that. You know, what's sustainable? Um, and it's, it's as if we're getting to areas, this is a real controversial idea, but I'm going to say it. That maybe one of the we somehow need to incentivize the killing of more deer in high population areas. Well, how do we do that? Leopold wrote eighty years ago about how hunters. Um, the intent is that hunters would do it, but they have proven time and time again that they they can't until or don't until the the um, until the ecosystem has been destroyed. He, there's a review of a book that he he talked about in huh. there. Um, that he wrote about that. And it's like, well, you know, and so there's pockets like that. So what does that really tells us is wildlife management, game species management has to be different everywhere. You can't kind of come up with a one size fits all strategy, right? Yeah. Um, uh, heck, here in Wisconsin, you know, Southwest Wisconsin, we've got this huge population of deer now seeing this collapse south of us. How do you incentivize people to... Um, to, to to hunt more deer so that you can get that population down when you have so much private land involved. And, of course, we can talk about that in a minute. But up in northern Wisconsin where they've got really severe winters and they've got wolves and they've got 
not great habitat, and all of that, you've got a small population up there. Well, management up there needs to be a hell of a lot different than it is in southwest Wisconsin, right? Yeah. So we're not even talking about my state versus Montana. We're talking about my, you know, one part of my state to another. So regional management um, and uh, it makes nothing but sense to me based on, you know, what's going on. And so often it happens here in Wisconsin, they try so hard they don't, not the DNR, because the DNR acknowledges, you know, and their scientists acknowledge how complicated it is. But there are those who say, we need to simplify the deer rules. And it's like, well, why? I mean, God, I look at the stuff that you guys do out west and all the units and the draws and the din and din and here in Wisconsin. It's like everybody just, a lot of people just want their, I'll get my buck tag and I'll go buck hunting. And, well, how about going to an area where there's a whole bunch of does and shooting a bunch of those? And then how do you get that done yeah. without forcing people to do it? Yeah. How do you incentivize that? Well, one way might be being able to sell venison. Um, you know, that goes over with a, like a lead balloon with a lot of people. But um, I'm like, maybe that's something we ought to be looking at. Yeah. Um, I would like to see in Wisconsin this thing called earn a buck come back where you got to shoot a doe before you can shoot a buck. And people are like, oh, I don't want to have to wait for, you know, to shoot a doe. I only want one deer and I want it to be a buck. And it's like, so now, unfortunately, our legislature took that power away from our, that tool away, that management tool away. Um, I know I'm going on and on about it, but that's the, 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 for management, what I find to be so interesting about it is that it needs the the whole nature of it is that it needs to be flexible and yeah. you need to be able to be nimble and change it based on the situation in that area and let's define what that area is. Heck, even in our CWD zone, what they what's um, when they had this management, it was well they used the they used a bad word when they first brought this out. You know, twenty years ago or twenty two years ago, they they established an eradication zone, mm. and they were going to eradicate the disease. And in order to eradicate the disease, we we're going to have to eradicate all the deer. Well, when you the reality of that in Southwest Wisconsin, and you start shooting as many deer as they did, they had semi loads of deer that were that ended up going. You know, they just went to an incinerator. Really? And they didn't, you know, they didn't get utilized and all that. And so that was like a, it was the right, seemed like the right thing at the time, as the song says. But, um, and it was the right thing at the time. The practice of it, though, was very difficult for people to wrap their heads around. Right. Um, and but they were they the, the DNR at that point was trying to you know what they thought they were doing was trying to wipe out a spark and unfortunately it had already we as we found out in retrospect that it had already spread to a bigger area and you know we tried for ten years and pretty successfully did and then um, about twelve years ago what year are we in yeah um, about twelve years ago we switched we changed we put our our deer management in somebody else's hands it wasn't it was no longer in our dnr we brought in this guy from texas to tell us how how we should be managing our deer and that we should quit worrying about cwd and boy that's what everybody wanted to hear quit worrying about cwd in 10 years so really it's only been 10 years where we quit managing and things have the prevalence has gone through the roof the spread has increased dramatically and so it's just a matter of it's almost like um you know, dominoes radiating out from a center point, yeah. right? That it's, you just can't kind of see that or a fire burning. I can't come up with a great analogy um, 
that the fire burns and, and then, you know, maybe after the fire burns through a few years later, it starts to get green again. And maybe that's what, what what's going to happen. But, and there are people who've advocated from the beginning, you just got to let nature take its course. And I'm like, well, yeah, but this nature didn't create this problem. We did. Yeah. Go back to what Suzuki said. Well, we can only manage ourselves. Well, let's, let's manage ourselves. Yeah. So. Well, so, so that's kind of a, a good segue um to i, I kind of w- tried man that no that was that was a good one um so th- this podcast is probably going to be coming out august september sometime in there um you know this is going to be the time where out west here people are are you know starting to get out scout a little bit not quite hunting season uh maybe pre-hunting season um but i i kind of just wanted to get your your thoughts on uh, I, I would say that you, um, a lot of people who are familiar with what you have done with sharing land, meat eater, um, they know that you are a, a big like land curator. I guess would be uh, maybe a good term for it, right? You, I, well, that's I feel a like, nice way of putting it. Nobody's nobody's quite said that before. The curator, I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so this summer time is. Um, a great time to, and I think we've talked about this before. It's a great time to, to see the land, um, almost more like untouched, you know, there's not a lot of hunting pressure. Um, but I'm, I'm just curious kind of like what some of the things that you do as a landowner and maybe as like, you know, scouting to, to give maybe the, the bow hunters that lease your land a little bit of Intel. Uh, what are you doing to kind of set you up for hunting season? Well, I will tell. You, let me start with what we don't we don't do. Um, I, I don't even put. I don't even plant food plots anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got all these smart aleck comments that I make, like bow hunting's for people who don't have enough to do. Food plots in farm country are like taking sand to the beach. I mean, I really feel like um, I have four hundred and thirty acres surrounded by, uh, and we don't have any crops on our farm at all. Um, my my cropland is all in CRP, and uh, sure I mow trails and yeah I oversee the trails and we have clover in that mix and you know there's some of those kinds of things but I'm not doing that intentionally like this is gonna be and it, and, and and full disclosure ten years ago I was still doing food plots and stuff you know um, but I I think we've talked about this before I reserved the right to change my mind and I changed my mind about it because I thought why am I so obsessed with trying to to have deer do unnatural things why don't i learn about them doing you know getting them to do more natural things or learn more about how they because that's how we used to do it you know it wasn't about get you know i want to put a food plot a hunting plot here so a deer comes out here and i'm going to do some hinge cutting and get them to direct and i got to stand up here and they're going to curl around that tree and it's going to be perfect for the bow hunter or whatever um it helps to have been around this place as long as I have been, but I'm always learning something about how the animals are are acting. And, you know, we did some logging a few years ago. And as that logging, ha- those areas that we logged have matured, the deer use them differently. So I'm making note of that, and I'm talking to my, my bow hunters and stuff about that. Those guys will be out here in a couple of weeks. Um, they were out here this spring, and they like to like do that spring scout right mm-hmm. where you can kind of see everything now everything's just greener in hell even though we're, we're pretty dry right now but um 
so that you can kind of go out there and see, well, here's how the deer use, you know, it's just, you can get a better feel for it. You know, we really get the four seasons here. So it's, it's important to kind of see how they act, how all of the wildlife uses it at different times. Um, so the kind of stuff I'm doing, I was just out today, like I said, I've been gone. So I was feeling a little, um, I'm behind. So I was out on a tractor with a brush hog on it today. And I was mowing thistles and stuff like that in the pasture, but I went on to our ridge roads. I, I avoid going out into our, and even going around the CRP where I can right now, because um, it's nesting season. And technically I'm not supposed to go into my CRP, even though with a, you know, for mowing and stuff, even though I can go around the outside because it's the first 10, 15 feet is mine. I'm not getting credit for that in the CRP. But um, I'm leaving that for the for the nesting birds, including wild turkeys and mm -hmm. and and fawns that are laying out there and and all of that. So you're kind of observing that. This is a time where you're really, I think, getting more done. Uh, I'm getting more done that has to do with with you know sort of maintenance of the farm. This spring, um, sharing speaking of sharing the land. I had a group of people hunting um, fourth season, and um, we did three. We burned three different. Uh, we did three different controlled burns while they were there. Because one thing with controlled burns, you need a lot of people and a lot of water. And if you don't, and if it gets out of control, you want a lot of water, right? I mean, that's the number one thing you want. But it's really easy to do. I, I was just watching a video that um, will be coming out. I would like to talk about that. It's going to be coming out later this week that that we did with Savage. And um, <laughs> there's a bunch of footage of us doing these burns. And, you know, you kind of look like you're working for the county when you're doing a burn. You know, you're just leaning on the tools most of the time. <laughs> yeah. because, of, because of it's burning right and it was set up right, you're really just watching it yeah. and making sure that it doesn't get out of control. And when it does start to get to a place where it's going to get a little weird, then everybody gets real busy real fast. Um, but it was funny because I was watching, the, watching this video and it's like, oh, it's all smoky and it's all, you know, really cool looking and everything. But they're just kind of leaning on their, their rakes and their shovels and stuff. Um, watching it um so that's some of the stuff that we've been doing recently i mean you know not right now but that was what we did during turkey season and then we hunted those areas because turkeys seem to like to go out into those areas that are burned um they get right they, they go right back on them and i don't know if it's just making bugs more available or you know or what but um that's one of the things that we've noticed. If you burn an area the next two or three days after that or four or five days after that, the birds are in there scratching around. Maybe it's just more accessible to them. So that was a big a big management thing we did this year, this spring. Um, like I said, I was doing some mowing and just keeping trails and stuff like that open. And then we've been doing some limbing and thinning or what we like to call timber stand improvement here. And uh, some of my uh, sharing land folks have been helping with that. So it's a pine plantation. We're taking limbs off. We're thinning trees out, and you know, um, it's 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 helping the the it's improving the health of that that woods. But then we're also using that material to build like bunny huts, you know, bunny piles, and and uh, providing cover to to for deer and turkeys and that sort of stuff. Um, the cool thing about that is I have these people um, helping with that. In fact, we're going to have a small group come on Saturday. And they're all asking questions about, well, how to, what is this going to do for 
deer hunting in the fall? What's this going to do for turkey hunting in the fall? What's this doing for everybody else? And so you get to have those conversations, right? Yeah. And they're they're working on that and they're learning that strategy of land management, but then they're also learning the benefit of it. And a lot of it's just intuitive, right? And um, that they're, you know, but of course, I, I'd like to think that I can, I, I know enough about it that I can t- teach people about some of this stuff. And um, those conversations ensue and they're a blast, right? I mean, it's just super fun to have people around who are interested in that kind of stuff. And that's conservation. Yeah. Oh, that's doing the work yeah. of conservation. You know, that's what we're doing. Yeah. Would so would you say that like uh, fire or in you know I guess it would be like f- fire in public lands but controlled burns and maybe in a more more private uh, private land setting would you say that that's like probably one of the most important land management tools out there in terms well, of sure the health big- health of the landscape. Yeah, it's, isn't I mean, we have this, this is kind of an ongoing debate, isn't it? That, well, we did fire suppression for so long in some areas of like public land that suddenly you got all this, uh, oh, I shouldn't say suddenly, but over time you have this big buildup of fuel. And then when fire does hit it, holy moly, it's a giant fire, mm-hmm. right? Um, a lot of that happening up there in Canada yeah. right now. We're still getting the crappy air down here from it. Um I can tell you this, on my CRP ground, I, I was a part of a mow contract. So I was mowing for maintenance, and there's a schedule over the 10-year period of time. Um, I know I can do a mow contract because I can always get it done. I get it done by myself, right? I can go out there on a tractor and get that stuff mowed. It's not as effective as burning it. Really? Just in these small areas, I mean, we did some three-acre plots that were pollinator habitat, that were... Um, a native a native area that we were just trying to help along, um, and it was getting real thatchy. We burn those things, and man, you go there now, and the the undesirable stuff. There's a lot less undesirable stuff like cool season grasses, um, like the the fescues and the and the bluegrass and the bromes, and and there's more of the of the warm season grasses, the big blue stem, the little blue stem, the panicum, the 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 Indian grass and then all of the cool forbs that that animals really like too, and pollinators really like. Um, I have a CRP contract coming up, and when it does, I'm going to probably end up going to 100% fire um, management, so that we'll burn it maybe three times over a 10 year period. Of wow! Time. Rotate it through, so we're not burning the whole thing at once. Yeah. Um, you know, and again. Remember, I, I'm always talking about scale here, right? We've got 100 acres in, in CRP. So if we could burn 30 acres a year, you know, we'd be, and, and 30 acres, pretty big, pretty big damn grass fire, I'll tell you that. Yeah. Um, especially when it really gets rolling. Um, and if we could do, I think we would, I know that we would have better regeneration and, of, of native species that those cool season grasses and, and sort of the undesirable stuff, when you burn it that often, it's gonna it, it, it just has a better effect. I have foresters who have been encouraging me. I think some of them maybe have pyromaniac tendencies, <laughs> but they've been really encouraging me for my oak regeneration to get in there and burn areas of that. But oh, I started a woods on fire when I was a ten year old kid, and I'm really afraid to start a fire in the woods. Yeah, you. <laughs> 
Can, can, that was a long time ago, but it's still, it's holy moly. You want me to start a fire in the woods? Uh, I don't think so. Yeah. It's just, it's so interesting to me how that kind of, that whole thing, I feel like in the last few years, it's really shifted. And I have a little bit different of a perspective being out West here because some of those fires have just had massive implications, both financially and obviously wildlife. Um, and, you know, it's kind of, caused people to have to reevaluate, you know, just the, the impact of fire. And, and I mean, it, it's so tough because when you're, when you're trying to consider like people's homes, right. And, and, you know, a lot of these people bought these houses with the assumption that if there was a forest fire that, that stoked up, you know, 20, 30 miles that the, that the, the, the fire crews were going to do their best to keep it from getting to their house, which usually means suppressing it way far from where it is. Um, but that being said, I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of sounding like a lot of the evidence is that, uh, is that, you know, we, we might've, we, we made our bed with a lot of this fire suppression and now we're having to sleep in it. Well, yeah, and I would say that you probably you have someone who's a lot more knowledgeable about fire out west than I am. But I will say, a couple of years ago, when I was out there and 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 the fires were happening, and we were fishing over in the big the tributaries of the Big Hole, mm. and there were places that where they wouldn't let us go, you know. And uh, but being two dummies from Wisconsin, we're like, yeah, but can we go up over there? And you know, we're, we're driving, and it was you know the fire had already been through there, and to me it was really interesting to look at. Because I could almost see the benefit of it, yeah. right? That you didn't have a bunch of duff and everything on the ground. And yeah, some trees went up and there's, boy, how do you, what's the right balance? But I bet I, I'd love to go back to, well, I, we marked a couple of with, with, uh, with Onyx. I, I, if I get back out there later this summer, I do want to go to those areas and see what kind of regeneration has happened, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I, I mean, I think you used the word a minute ago, and that's balance. You know, what is the balance in there? And that's, I think that's what we're trying to, to figure out all the time. If we are, if we have, uh, if we're completely suppressing fires, that's probably not a good idea. But I, I also know talking with folks who who deal with fire and stuff out there that. Boy, there's houses that get built in places, and like all of a sudden, it's everybody's responsibility to keep their house from burning down. Yeah, maybe where they built that house wasn't such a good idea. You know, you you build a you build a house right on the coast and in the swamp, and a hurricane comes in and wipes it out. It's like, well, what do you think was going to happen? True. You know, I mean, those yeah. those things become a part of it too. Yeah. And you know, I'm sitting here smugly in the Midwest where we've got our issues and everything, but I tell you what, we got plenty of water. Yeah. We've got a lot of, we got a lot of water here and, uh, um, and, you know, good, good, clean water for the most part, fre good, fresh water sources and all of that. And, um, you know, we're not going to fall into the, we're not going to fall into the ocean and, and I don't know that we're going to go up in, in big flames like those giant woods are either. But that, all that being said, man, I was out there in Montana I was out in Eastern Washington over the last weekend or you know a week uh, 10 days ago and uh hadn't been to eastern washington before and it, it's just incredible driving from seattle out to walla walla and seeing the the whole columbia river river valley the yakima valley all the things that they have going there and then meeting with some landowners 
there and looking at the land use and the restoration efforts that they've made and what they're dealing with. And it was just like, uh, man, I just wanted to soak in everything that they were um, telling me. And here they were asking me lots of questions. I'm like, no, 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 you keep talking. I want to know more about. So I was asking a lot of questions about what was, why this happened and why this was, you know, it was wheat country where we were. Um, super interesting. And they're trying to figure out what their balance is, yeah. right? And then I went back to Seattle and then flew to Bozeman and went over to over you know went west to the ruby valley and and then i'm there in bozeman and you know i've been to bozeman for a few times and and uh that's interesting to see how that area is changing and um <laughs> you know that was uh that was a real uh that's an eye opener when you go there and see what's happening but i understand why people are there i just love that area just i, I mean i just love visiting out there i understand why people are moving there yeah i'm not going to be one of them i like where i'm at too and uh I, you know what's that expression about it's a nice place to visit but i wouldn't want to live there well it's a nice place to visit and i totally understand why people want to live there yeah right yeah I'm just not going to be the one to do it. So people are like, oh, you're welcome back to come and visit anytime you want. So, yeah. you know, God, what a, it's just, it's just incredible being out there. I just, I mean, I get why you folks like it out West so much, man. I, I mean, it's pretty nice. And just the, for me, it's just the access, right? I mean, like it's, it's different if he, if he got a piece of property, you know, I, I see the, the allure to especially what you're doing with you know kind of just being so deeply invested into this piece of land and i'm sure you see you notice so much more about you know maybe it's uh whether it's after you you do a controlled burn in this one segment or or you plant a different type of tree in in this other section um but you know not it's kind of a different thing out here um, and, but I, I do think like a lot of those conservation ethics can be applied and, um, you know, I, I guess, and I, I do kind of got to get out of here in a sec, but I, I guess one more question I would have for you kind of relating to what you were just talking about would be, is there any, was there any information traded between you and some of these landowners out West about, you know, whether it's something that you do that these landowners were like, oh man, I could I could do that to create better habitat for for my deer and elk, uh, or or vice versa. Was there anything like that discussed between you guys? Yeah, well, and that's 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 a really interesting question. So the people that I was visiting with in um, Eastern Washington was was a um, uh, Upland Game Bird Group. Mm. It was a Pheasants Forever chapter, right? And they put out these things they call guzzlers, right? And it collects rainwater and drops it into this thing mm -hmm. and so that there's water there. And I'm not thinking that's such a great thing to be doing in a high-prevalent CWD area. But what they're doing in eastern Washington is deer couldn't even get under there if they wanted to. They're doing that for the birds mm. and then for the smaller mammals and everything, right? Um, deer, for the most part, get, um, you know, like, I don't know, I was just talking to one of the NDA guys about it. And he goes, well, geez, they get 75% of their water from the, the plants that they eat. I mean, don't get me wrong, they'll go to a water hole and everything too, but um, they're getting that much 
of that, whereas birds and smaller mammals need, need that. So they actually built these guzzlers so a deer couldn't get under there. Mm. And I said, was that intentional? And they're like, uh, yeah, I, I guess. <laughs> um, and then they said, well, we've got others where they're, they're, um, they're higher up where a deer could get under. And I'm like, well, I would have concerns about that if you had a high population and CWD. But man, it's Eastern Washington. And I was like, I'm sorry, fellas, where are the deer that you were talking about? And they're like, oh, there's like, I mean, they didn't really have the numbers per square mile, but man, I could see a lot of square miles and I didn't see any freaking deer, yeah, you know? Yeah. Because there's just, just nothing there for them. Although the one guy said, yeah, you'd be surprised. It'd be a mule deer laying right up there, you know, looking looking at us right now. But when you talk about the numbers, they were really low. So it was interesting how they're using some of the same things that we're using and then maybe where we don't need it here, right? We've got all kinds of natural water. They're, they're in an area where there just isn't any. Yeah. But we've got, it's like one of those tricks, you know, we're going to put out a little pool and water's going to get gathered in it and stuff. And I'm like, I don't know if that's such a good idea. But what we did talk about, and this is consistent as it can be across the country, is um, restoration of native landscapes. So that was what we were, they were most proud of is they were showing me some of the, the work that they had done, an old railroad bed mm. and how they had taken this. Um, and you know, there was a big easement, so I don't know, 60 feet on both sides. And then there's a lot of the waste and stuff from the railroad yep. and that they've been restoring this through this private land. And they're like, you know, it's kind of nice walking through here. Cause you're, you know, the, the dogs are working on both sides and you're up here on this, yeah. you know, this, this, you got a pathway to walk on. Um, but beautiful how the work that they were doing. And, uh, you know, and I was talking about how we're restorative stuff that we're doing. And what was cool about this um, Pheasants Forever group is they were doing, this wasn't their land. This was some landowner who had been granting access. And, and that's what they wanted to talk to me about is, well, how my sharing the land program works and then how they can use that um, same model with, with their stuff because they're running into this problem where, They've got more projects to do. They just, and, and landowners who are willing to do it, but they don't have enough people because they just like, well, how do we recruit them? Yeah. And so that was what we started talking about. And well, here's, here's some of the things I would suggest that you would do. So super cool that they are out there doing restorative work on private land that has public access and and doing it on land that they don't that none of those none of those people actually owned even though some of them were private landowners they're out working on i love that stuff man i I like going to work on my buddy's property too you know um so that was some of the stuff that we shared um we discussed um and this was in washington we discussed uh uh, uh, uh deer health quite a bit and then we also spoke about um uh you know, ways that we can be supportive of hunting um, through hunter recruitment and the R3 stuff. And, and they're doing great work out there, man. Those folks at the Blue Mountain Pheasants Forever chapter are, are doing great work out there. And I got a bunch of new friends out there. And I hope I can get myself back out there to do a little um, quail and, and pheasant hunting, um, you know, again, one of these falls. Um, and then in Bozeman, it was a whole lot of discussion about um, – uh, it was a whole lot of discussion about about chronic wasting disease and and where we're at and what we can do about it. Yeah, and and so it was I, I, it was real productive. Yeah, it was real productive. 
And access, you know, Ryan, access is a part of all of that. You know, I've talked about this before, my sharing the land um, initiative. I mean, a part of the reason I did it is so that I could get more deer harvested off my property. And then I wasn't doing it because I think I told you the story about I shot seven antlerless deer one day. I felt like a deer exterminator. Yeah. And that's a lot of work to handle seven deer also. And so I'm like, well, wait a minute. Why wouldn't I help, you know, why wouldn't want to share that joy with other people and get them to do the work? But then also to, to, to feel that, you know, that they're, we, we killed 40 deer in my place last year and, um, I've got all the venison I want. And, People really uh, did a great job of coming and, and understanding that they were making a uh, they were making a contribution to conservation by coming shooting a, hunting on my farm, and spe- especially shooting an antlerless deer. Yeah, um, and you know, and that's that becomes that access thing. And every one of those people who did, and even ones who didn't shoot deer. We're like, hey, when can I come back and help you with something? And so now we're 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 we we I'm happy to say that we have 23 different properties in eight different states. We have 300 cooperators. We still are, you know, the problem that we still have is that in places where we've got a bunch of land, like in Southwest Missouri and and, and North Dakota, we've got several properties there. We just don't have that many access seekers nearby. Mm-hmm. You know, land around urban areas, like here in the Driftless area, we have more access seekers than we have land to get them on. But um, as this idea grows, um, we're hoping that those two things will catch up and that all of the other access programs that we have, like block management, like you got out there in... um, in Montana and the voluntary public assets programs that are part of the farm bill and some of the other states. And we do have that here in Wisconsin a little bit too. Um, and, and all of these other incentive programs, you know, and, and, and leasing, I like the short term leasing model. I mean, obviously, cause I do it. I like that model more than I like people locking it up year round. Yeah. Um, because it's, it, it, there's more flexibility and, um, I like that model better. Um, because, and then maybe landowners will go, you know, I made a little bit of money on this. Now I'll let some people come in who just are going to help out or who, you know, maybe they don't even need the help. They just would like to have somebody else doing that. But I, but they want to have that relationship with those people. Yeah. So I I think that, and what's been cool about sharing the land is people have been contacting me. Oh man, I'm doing something like that. This is my property now. Great. Will you write a story about that and send us some pictures? It's almost like. People forgot that whole system of bartering and just like helping each other out. So let's start celebrating that yeah. more, right? Let's 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 feature that more rather than the lock it down and don't let anybody else on there. And you know that's the only way you're going to kill big giant bucks and stuff. So all of that stuff is 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 a part of this. So I'm 64 years old. I'm going to be 65 in January, and I, I'm trying. I, and I have good reason to be optimistic. You know. And um, trying to be positive about it, and I and um, and it's not an act. It's just it's so much fun having people being involved with all of this stuff, and even the terrible things like CWD. It's like, well, where's the silver lining in this? Yeah. Let's find that. Yeah, and access is one of the the silver linings, right? Definitely. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I'm I'm glad to hear that sharing the land is is doing good, and um, yeah, I, I think that's an idea that is definitely popping up rapidly here and uh you know you're you're starting to see more of um i just saw there's a a fishing app that is like daily you know 
ranchers can can uh for 100 bucks you can go on this guy's piece of private property and it's just you know for a day um and you know they they manage it right they have people that manage it to make sure that it's not getting overfished and stuff like that but it seems like the uh that that concept is kind of catching on more and and it, it does seem like there's starting to be i mean the thing is you just need incentive you need some sort of incentive um for for a landowner to to let you on their on their property and fi- finance is you know money is nice but it's not always not always the the number one thing um when it comes to your land and and the you know the respect is such a big part of it and so yeah we definitely i'm i'm glad that it's doing well um i i do have to i do have to jump off here um but did you have anything else that you wanted to close close on well i would just tell you that um Folks can go and look at uh, sharingtheland.com, and we're also it has we have an Instagram page. Um, Doug Duran is also an Instagram page, and dougduran.com is a, my website, and those are places you can find out with what what we're doing and what's going on. Um, there's a really there's a great video with Savage that I'm very proud of that yeah. we did that was um, um, about Elder Leopold and the Riley Game Cooperative, and that came out a month or six weeks ago, and um, really got a great reaction to it. And it just talks about this idea of how Leopold went and helped improve some private land in exchange for the access to it. And now um, this week, later this week, actually, the next in that series will come out um, through uh, my work with Savage. And um, it's actually, it's a little a little unsettling. I just saw the final cut of it. And it's like 11 minutes mostly about me. And 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 it's and our farm, but there, I'm on the thing a lot. And having a, a face for radio, it's a little unsettling to see yourself on screen that much, or being the featured part of the thing. You know, I've been obviously I've been on a bunch of meat eaters and stuff, but that's I'm just a part of it as opposed to the center of it. But it's really cool to see um, what we've done in my family's farm in this area be featured in something like that. And very proud that that is. Um, very proud that that's happening, and that'll be out later this week, and you'll be able to find that on our social media. And um, is it going to be on? It'll be a third. Going to be on YouTube. What's that? Yeah, it'll be on YouTube. You can look under, and it'll be on the headline page of the Savage Arms Company as well. Cool. I'll put the and link in sharing in the podcast that, description. Yeah, too. that'd be great. I was, um, and and so that's that's going on. Um, I've always got something on the burner with my friends at Meat Eater. Um, we had some talks when I was out there about hopefully we can get something going um, for this fall. It's you know it's the other thing about that is you never know. We'll see. I, I hate to say too much because it just uh, um, then that makes those kind of deals fall through. Um, we've got some really exciting stuff going on with sharing the land and stuff that we're working on to expand the thing and get more people involved and more landowners involved. So. I just encourage everybody to keep an eye on what we're doing. And, and um, if you're a landowner, really consider signing up for Sharing the Land. If you have any questions about it, you send an email to Sharing the Land, and guess who gets that? I do. And, you know, we can have a conversation about it. So we're working pretty hard at that. And um feel like I'm giving you some sort of sports interview here at the end, um, <laughs> giving it 110% and all of that. But um, but really, we're having we're having fun with it, and I'm, I'm re-energized. Um, uh, as a result of this, this, these last two weeks of being, you know, kind of 
deep diving into it. So thank you so much for having me on, Ryan. Oh, yeah. Thank you for jumping on. I, I really appreciate it. 